Good evening, church. Welcome to Good Friday. We're so glad that you're here. Tonight, we were calling this service Sacred Symbols. We're going to give three teachings throughout the evening about some of the symbols associated with Good Friday and the events leading up to the crucifixion that aren't the cross. Everybody knows that the cross is the central symbol of the Christian faith. But tonight, we're going to explore some of these other things that came along the way. If you remember last week, we started walking through Holy Week. We started on Sunday. Pastor Scott taught about what happened Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. That brings us up to Thursday. The events of the Last Supper actually in the, in the, in the timeline of the week would have happened last night. As we sit here on, on Friday night, uh, Jesus would have already been crucified and buried. So we are looking back and we're going to bring ourselves caught up to this moment. We're going to begin our evening with just a time of worship. Uh, and then we'll be singing throughout the evening. So I won't cue you to stand. If you want to stand throughout the evening, that's up to you. But let's stand together and sing some worship time uh, just as we get our hearts uh, in this space. I'm going to pray if that's all right. Father God, we come to you tonight um, with a spirit of joy knowing that Easter Sunday is rapidly approaching. But at the same time, we believe that it is good and valuable and honoring to Jesus, your son, to pause for a moment and reflect back on what happened on Thursday evening and Friday. We must recognize that for Jesus to be resurrected, he first had to be beaten and mocked and betrayed and ultimately killed and put in the ground. We have to walk with the disciples through that sorrow, through that anxiety. It is my sincere prayer, Father God, that the events of this evening would lead us to a deeper place of joy and satisfaction in the completeness of the work upon the risen on the cross when we gather on Sunday morning. We invite your Holy Spirit here to do work among us. Convict us of our sin, of our apathy, Lord. Draw us and woo us back to the center of your heart. We dedicate the next hour to your glory to honoring you, to what you did and what you're still doing. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.
vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure how great the pain of searing hearts the father turns his face I do not find much wisdom online, <laughs> but just this morning, there's a pastor that I follow on social media, and he said something that I thought was really meaningful. He said, don't be so fast to rush through Good Friday and get to Sunday. When you just rush to the victory, you don't make space for people who are suffering and who need to know that there's a suffering Savior. So as we sing this last song of our opening worship set, I just want to let you know that, man, if you are in a season that is not feeling like resurrection victory season just yet, uh, you are seen and loved. You are known by God. There's a place for you at this church. And we know the victory's coming, so you're never going to hear me not say that the victory's coming because the victory is coming. But as we sing this song, I just wanted to make space for those of you that are hurting this evening. The Lord knows and the Lord is with you. Let's sing one more song together.
Like I said, as we continue, please feel free to stand if you want to, but I'm not going to cue it from here on out. Please be seated. Sacred symbols. I want to greet uh, the people beyond the tree. I am here, I swear. Ask them, they can vouch. Um, why symbols? I'm sorry, I have to take a sip of tea, so this is not scripted. My Why symbols in the first place? Symbols help us understand. Have you ever noticed that in the scripture, God's people, right, it's happening right in front of them. And they're like, what's happening? Have you ever noticed this? It's, just, it's difficult to discern in the moment. Uh, how many times have you been through a season in your spiritual life where it's very difficult for you to tell what's happening in the moment, only with the benefit of hindsight, can you tell what God was doing? Can I get an amen? Anybody ever been through that? Sometimes it takes people time to discern what God is doing right now. I think symbols help give us something to hang on to as that is unfolding. Symbols also help us to remember. It has been shown again and again that sensory cues can help us directly access and trigger memories. This is why the smell of your favorite childhood meal can literally put you right there. The olfactory nerve triggers a memory and all of a sudden you are in your childhood kitchen about to eat and you have those memories, they're vivid. Uh, like with a stop sign, it's really not the word stop that makes you s slow down, it's the red color and the octagonal shape that your brain has been associating with stop since the moment you first drove a car. Symbols are important, they're tools in the life of faith and God has given us many. We're gonna look at three tonight. We're gonna start with communion. So if you don't have your communion element handy, why don't you grab it? Normally when I do this, I sing a song before we take it, but we're going to sing the song after. So maybe just get your, 
Get your communion element prepared. Um, what is the symbolism of communion? I, I've broken it down into kind of three different symbolic meanings. Uh, the first is the history of it. The practice of communion is actually tied to the Passover. Uh, for centuries before the birth of Christ, observant Jews have gathered on this very weekend to remember God delivering them from slavery in Egypt. If you remember, in the night of God's final judgment against Pharaoh, the Hebrew people were instructed to eat unleavened bread because they did not have time to wait for the yeast to rise, as God knew they had an imminent departure in their future. They were instructed to smear the blood of a spotless lamb over their doors to indicate that they belonged to God and that the angel of death would pass over their houses. Jesus infuses these Passover elements with new meanings. This is my body, he says, predicting his own death. It will be torn apart and consumed. As you eat, remember me. This is my blood poured out as an offering. Drink and remember me. He's tying the communion, the last supper, <clears throat> to the Passover. Okay, it's the old covenant and the new covenant coming together. Um, so those are, those are two. You've got history and then you've got the present moment. You've got Jesus in the room saying, you've known these elements to be this, but we're going to give them a new meaning as well. But there is one more layer of communion that I think sometimes maybe gets lost in translation uh, to our modern understanding. But I think it's reasonable to, to suspect that it would have really resonated with the apostles in the room. And that's what I want to spend a minute talking about. Um, so the ritual that Jesus is teaching here actually mimics the Jewish betrothal and engagement practices of the day. Uh, back then, marriages were, for better or worse, see what I did there, orchestrated events. They were arranged, involving not only the bride and the groom, but the extended family and community. When a potential bride and groom were preparing to be engaged, a couple of critical things would happen. First of all, the father of the groom would pay a very large dowry to the father of the bride. It was called a mohar. And obviously the idea of paying for a bride seems a bit uh, arcane and even borderline misogynistic by today's understanding. But back then, everyone in the family system worked. They had a job to do. Okay, keep in mind this was an agrarian culture. They had been nomadic for centuries before settling in Israel. Everyone worked. Everybody had a job to do. The dowry was actually intended as a compliment and a sign of respect from the groom's family, honoring the work that the bride would now accomplish in her own home versus the home of her family of origin. Okay, that's where that kind of came from. But there was a significant price that was paid from the father of the groom to the father of the bride. When all the arrangements had been made, the groom and his father would travel to the home of the bride-to-be and would prepare a meal. The meal was concluded with a cup of wine. When the bride accepted and drank from the cup, that engagement was now legally binding. Okay? It's like the same as like when they sign, you sign your name on a contract, you now own the house. In that culture, the symbolism of drinking the wine meant the arrangements were accepted, the bride and the groom's family are putting their blessing, and the bride herself has accepted the engagement proposal. In that culture, there was no difference between the engagement and the marriage in terms of the law. At that point, they were legally bound together. So just, uh, oh, oh, one more thing, one more thing. Sorry, looking at my notes, trying to be all conversational. When the bride formally accepted the proposal, the groom would then return to his father's house and begin to literally prepare a new home on his family's land where he and his bride would live after the actual wedding. So, does any of this sound vaguely familiar? It should. John chapter 14, Jesus says to the disciples that his father's house has many rooms, that he's going to prepare a place for them, and one day he is coming back to get them. In multiple epistles, Paul outlines the reality that, spiritually speaking, Christ is the groom and the church is the bride. This imagery really starts to lay over each other. Uh, so communion is a, a symbolic of many things. It's a reminder of the history of God's covenant with Abraham and their escape from Egypt. It's a reminder of this present sacrifice that's about to happen, the tearing of his body and the pouring out of his blood. But here's the thing. It is also a marriage proposal. God the Father understands that for his son to claim his bride, a massive price, a dowry, a moha, must be paid. Jesus himself is that payment. Um, later in the scriptures, it's caution. Paul basically says, if you're not a believer, don't take communion. It's not for you, right? 
And again, that kind of flies in the face of our very inclusive moment in, in history that we're in. But, but I, th- I think it's really a gift to be given permission because when you take communion, you're not just remembering the old covenant and the new covenant. You're not just remembering Christ's sacrifice on the cross. It, obviously, we are remembering all those things. But even more than that, uh, you're accepting God's proposal of eternity with you. This is not a death to us part situation. This is for eternity. This is the marriage of God, the groom, and the church, the bride, forever. You're a part of that. Um, I think that is really beautiful. Um, And I think it adds, again, the the richness of Scripture. There is layer upon layer. It's like you can learn. I just think it's so beautiful. You can learn what you need to be saved in 10 minutes, and then an entire lifetime unearthing the jewels of the wisdom that God has placed in this text. So with that in mind, church, we have before us the very familiar communion elements. And with the idea of this symbolism in mind, the richness of what was happening, we must remember that in this room was Jesus the Savior and 12 of his closest friends who had done life together. And they didn't know what was going on, but Jesus did. And he took a piece of bread and he gave it to his friends And he said, I want you to eat this, and when you do in the future, I want you to remember my body that was torn and broken for you. Church, let us eat and remember the body of Christ broken. And now the cup. It doesn't matter that it's not wine. It's not really blood either. It's a symbol. It's a symbol. It represents something greater than what you hold in your hand. This is a plastic cup full of grape juice. But what it represents is the old covenant that God made with Abraham thousands of years ago. It represents the new covenant that God made through Jesus, his son, offering himself as a blood offering for the atonement of sin of many. That's everybody in this room everyone who's ever lived in your family tree, everyone who will ever live. And he awful, also awful. <laughs> he also offers a proposal of eternal unity between God the Father and his bride, the church. So when you drink, remember the richness of what Jesus Christ did on your behalf. Drink and remember him. We're going to sing together.
When Jesus and the disciples were hanging out in Jerusalem, uh, they had a spot. They had a spot that they would go to. It's kind of their little corner. Uh, when they were having their get-togethers, they'd go to this place. And it kind of checked all the boxes. They, uh, this place uh, was close enough to the city where they didn't have to take a ton of time and like spend all this time traveling. But at the same time, it was far enough where it was secluded. It was isolated. They had their own little space. It was super pretty there. Uh, it was a great space for meeting with a group, which there was a number of them. Uh, but also, it was a, just a really cool spot to go and be by yourself and pray. It was a famous garden just east of the city. Um, it was on the Mount of Olives. It was called the Garden of Gethsemane. Yep. So whenever I hear Garden of, kind of my mind immediately goes there, right? It's probably the most famous garden that I can think of, at least especially in Christian circles. Uh, and the garden is famous because of what we're talking about here tonight. So on that very first Holy Week, on Thursday night, uh, after they ate the Passover meal, after Jesus instituted communion, the Lord's Supper, Jesus led his disciples out and visited this usual spot. And some very dramatic things went down. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that here momentarily. But first, what I wanted to do is I just wanted to help fill in a couple of gaps. Uh, my hope with this symbol is to just set the scene and help you experience a little bit more of what the garden was like on that night. So the name Gethsemane is not just a fun, hey, well, let's put some, symbols, or some syllables together and come up with a name. It's not. The name Gethsemane means oil press. Oil press. Any thoughts as to what type of oil this could be referring to? No, it has nothing to do with what goes in your car. Any thoughts as to what kind of oil we're talking about? Olive oil. You guys are so smart. So we are not talking about a typical garden. We're not talking about flowers. We're not talking about pot potted plants and shrubberies and all that stuff. It's really just a grove of olive trees, hence being on the Mount of Olives, right? So most likely, based on the name, one would assume that there was also an olive press, this giant stone thing that they would use to crush olives to make the olive oil. So to give you a little bit better of a frame of reference, uh, I have this picture which you in the back are not going to be able to see, but it's going to be great. So I went to Israel a number of years back, and I took a picture from the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, and it looks, today, it looks like this. So just a grove of olive trees. I'll hold it out as much as I can. This is the best I can do. Um, and a couple of things that stood out to me and can probably stand out to you from looking here at this picture. The first is look how close the garden is to the Temple Mount. Look how close it is right into the heart of Jerusalem. When you start thinking about Jesus being in the garden and praying, knowing what was coming the next night, look how close he was. He could probably hear the sounds of the city as he's there in the garden. The second thing that stands out is you see kind of the grove of olive trees, right? So again, it's just a bunch of these bad boys just hanging out. Uh, olive trees, this one here is about, I don't know, nine feet or so. Average, they grow to about 20 or 30 feet tall. I don't know if you could tell the scale there from that photo. And olive trees live for a really long time. The average life of an olive tree is 500 years. The oldest olive trees live to be 1,500 years. Pretty wild, right? When they die, and they do eventually die, what will happen is this bad boy will just fall straight on over, but the root system will stay alive. So this one dies, it falls over, the root system is still alive, and a new shoot sprouts up from the same exact spot and a new tree is born there in that spot. Any scriptures come to mind when I talk about a shoot coming up out of something? Maybe initially where your mind goes is where mine went. It's from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 11 says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. 
That is a messianic passage referring to Messiah. A shoot will come up out of Jesse. Knowing what we know now about the olive tree, it kind of gives an extra layer of meaning, right? It's not just the author Isaiah using some artsy, fancy language. He's referencing something that the original readers would have understood, and it would have been this beautiful picture for what was going to happen when the Messiah came, coming from the line of Jesse of David. But wait, there is more. The Hebrew word for shoot, the Hebrew word for shoot is neser. Neser, as in Nazareth, as in Jesus of Nazareth. The Messiah, the shoot, coming from the line of Jesse. Pretty amazing, right? So, in this grove of olive trees, that's the place that Jesus would meet regularly with his disciples. It's the place that he went on that Thursday night to pray. After the Passover meal, the disciples followed him to the garden to their spot. He brought Peter, James, and John a little bit further into the garden, told them to wait and pray while he went off to pray himself. Uh, in front of you, uh, you have a olive branch in that jar or in the back. You have it in those bags. Go ahead and grab that olive branch. Take it on out. Pick it up, touch it, smell it, taste it if you're brave. I don't really care. Whatever you want to do. Just for a moment, what I want you to do is just for a moment, I want you to imagine that you are Peter, okay? You're in the garden, cozying on up to a nice olive tree, hanging out, ready to pray, because that's what Jesus told you to do. If it was me, I'd probably be picking at stuff, breaking leaves, pulling off leaves, just kind of hanging out. That's what I would be doing for sure. He falls asleep three times. Three different times he falls asleep, even though it wouldn't have been that comfy, right? I, probably not all that comfy. He falls asleep. Maybe the first two times after Jesus wakes him up, he's like, yo, what are you doing? He might have gone back to playing with the fig, with, with the olive branch again. But definitely not on that third time. On the third time when he was woken up, while Jesus was still speaking to Peter, James, and John, the dynamic of the garden shifted. It shifted drastically. All of the sudden, things got very, very serious. This spot, this garden, this grove of olive trees, all at once turned from this idyllic, peaceful, beautiful place that they came together, and it turned into this intense showdown. Judas, the traitor, shows up with a great crowd. It's described as a great crowd. It is not just a few people. It is a great crowd. And it's not just priests in their robes. It's not. It's soldiers ready for a battle, armed with swords and with clubs. As I kind of picture this coming down the way, like I see William Wallace coming with his band of crazies, like coming on in ready to scrap. So, so intimidating, I can only imagine. But Jesus doesn't back down. He actually steps forward and asks, who are you guys looking for? Obviously, he already knows. They respond, they're looking for Jesus. And Jesus responds, I am he. This entire mini army literally falls to the ground because of the authority that Jesus had. Unbelievable scene. At that point, I would imagine the disciples who might have been were probably terrified with this group of guys coming their way, knowing that a battle is coming. I would imagine that at that moment, that probably gave them a little bit of confidence. I would think. He just put them all on their butts with a word emboldened. Maybe at this point, their hearts slow down, their senses come back. They might even be able to smell the olive trees again. At that point, uh, you can stop imagining your Peter if you haven't already done so, because at that point, uh, Peter decides to attack. He cuts off the high priest's servant's ear, 
And then, what nobody expected, everything just stopped. I would imagine that that would have caused mass chaos. The battle would have begun, but yet that's not what happened. Jesus stopped everything again with just words. He stopped Peter. He stopped the others from attacking. He scolds Peter with my favorite verse in this entire story. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled? Do you think I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 60,000 angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled? And at that, it was time for the garden to empty again. The disciples fled. They ran for cover. And Jesus willingly left with his captors willingly laid down his authority and power that he so clearly demonstrated and left arrested with his captors. At that, Jesus left Gethsemane, the place of the oil press, so that he could go and be pressed for us.
Amen. Well, as you can imagine, this was a, a lot going on in that evening. After he's been abandoned, after he's been betrayed, after he willingly goes away with the soldiers, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but between midnight on Friday and 9 a.m., Jesus endured six different trials. Have you ever thought about that? Six different trials in that, in that short period of time. Imagine the God of the universe in the flesh being willing to stand before the court of man. What a joke. Three trials before Jewish leadership and three trials before Roman ruler, rule. And in those three trials, first the Jewish trials, he was actually found guilty. They pressed him to the point where they finally asked him, are you the Messiah? In Mark 14, 62, he acknowledges that he is. So they deem, they can't deal with that idea, that process of him actually being who he claimed to be was too big for their minds to hold. And so they, they chose to find him guilty. So, but the problem was being under Roman rule, they weren't allowed to put him to death as they wished. Instead, they had to figure out before morning how they could get Rome to align with their decision that he was guilty. So they brought him between before three different courts. First, Pilate. Then Pilate tried to uh, kind of pass him off, if you remember the account. Said, uh, Herod, you, you deal with this. Herod's like, not me. Back to Pilate. Pilate's finally forced to come to some kind of conclusion about his guilt. And it's fascinating. Two different times, Pilate says something that still rings in our mind today. I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt. I, I, can't, I can't see anything that you're pointing to that's worthy of death. And so in that, he's sensing though the pressure from the people. I don't know if you've ever experienced peer pressure, but this was heavy. This was him trying to keep peace amongst the, uh, the people, the, the, the Jews not ca causing any kind of a stir. And so he came up with this idea of how he could maybe satisfy them. He gave them an option. Do you remember the option to choose between Jesus or Barabbas? Who do you want? This known insurrectionist, this known criminal, known killer. Who do you want to have set free? And surprisingly to them, who did they choose? Give us Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. We'll, we'll take Barabbas. You deal with Jesus. And so Pilate's hand was forced, one might say, to actually condemn Jesus to his death. Well, that started the spiral of what we know as the scene of the crucifixion. And it started fairly light with a few punches, some scoffing. Although if you've ever been punched, that's something you definitely remember. A few punches, a little bit of scoffing, some mocking, but then it escalated as he was whipped. And you've all seen it. Most of us have seen the passion of the Christ unbelievable torment that Jesus endured for each one of us. In addition to that, we're told that his beard was ripped from his face, that a crown of thorns was forced onto his head, all preparing him, getting him ready for the ultimate was to have him march carrying his own cross all the way to a hill where he would be actually attached to that cross by nails. Think about that just for a moment, what all he endured on our behalf. It was about six hours that he remained on that grueling cross until about 3 p.m. on Friday where he breathed his last breath. And the Romans were very good at confirming that somebody was dead. Nobody's sneaking by and pretending they're dead on a Roman cross. What did they do? They forced a spear into his side just to confirm that the job was finished. All of this was for you and I. It's a sacrifice made on our behalf. Something to, to, to set us free, part of our rescue plan, if you will. I carved out, just when we're thinking of how to utilize this time tonight, I carved out just a, a few moments now, just for us to be quiet. I feel like we get running so hard and don't slow down. I just thought it'd be good for us to just slow down for a few minutes, maybe bow your head, and just consider for a few moments the sacrifice that was made on your behalf. Then I'll continue with the idea of symbols.
A lot of uh, interesting things were happening around the crucifixion that maybe don't get the initial attention as we give it thought. First, we're told that while Jesus was on the cross, that the sky went completely black. Can you imagine mid middle of the day and you're just like, what's happening right now? Where, where's the sun? I don't know how God accomplished it, but pretty intense backdrop for the death of our Savior. In addition to that, we're told when he breathed his last breath that the actual earth shook. Can you imagine you're just like, what is going on here? We freak out when there's a little tremor. Imagine the whole earth shaking at his death. In addition to the earth shaking, we're told, and this is the part that always blows my mind, that dead people that were in tombs in Jerusalem started coming back to life and just walking around the city. You're like, what in the world? Zombie apocalypse. Like, what is going on? All of this in response to God in the flesh dying on this cruel cross. We're told that something was also happening in the temple the place where they gathered to worship. Really, at the exact same time where lambs were being sacrificed for the atonement for sin on Passover, we're told in Matthew 27, 51, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Again, curtain of the temple torn in two from top to bottom. There's a piece of fabric you probably noticed on your table there. If you each wanted to grab one of those just for a moment. This is I give a, a little bit of a backdrop in explaining the significance of this third symbol. This piece of, of fabric representing the curtain. The curtain, if you aren't familiar with the backstory, our willful rebellion all the way back with Adam and Eve had created a separation between us and a perfect God. The prophet Isaiah tells us, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. He clearly explains it to us. But because of God's desire to be in relationship with his creation, he put in place a sacrificial system that allowed for partial connection with God. If you've been with us in our series through Hebrews, we've been talking about that sacrificial system that allowed for some degree of connection with a perfect God. Part of that system was in a sense of making the minimum payment on a debt, but really there was never going to be true relationship with God until the debt was paid in full, until the debt was paid in full. But there's a spot in the temple, and we've talked about this as well, described as the Holy of Holies. And this is the place, the earthly dwelling place of God's presence. There's an area that was separated, and this is interesting to me, by a 60-foot tall curtain. 60 feet tall. I was trying to figure out how tall the space is. I'm not exactly sure about that. But this was a, a big curtain. 60 feet tall, 30 feet wide. And this is another thing that caught my attention. They believe it was about four inches thick. When you think about your, your thickest winter sweater, nobody's got any four inch thick sweaters. I mean, this was a major, major curtain. And church history tells us that it took about 300 priests to move this curtain, keeping it from touching the ground. So 300 people to move. This curtain was a constant reminder, though. It's a constant reminder that our sin has left us unfit for the presence of God. Unfit for the presence of God. That's why when we read that verse in Matthew 27, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Behold, could contain some significance to it. That's like, oh my goodness, you would not believe what just happened. The curtain, 60 feet tall, 30 feet wide, four inches thick, just ripped from the top, from this at the 60 foot point, ripped down to the bottom. Imagine what the scene would have been like in the temple. Caiaphas was most likely in there performing his annual visit into the Holy of Holies to make sacrifice. We call that Yom Kippur, where he's making atonement for the sins of people. Imagine what the sound of that curtain ripping would have been like. 
That'd be cool just for a moment. Each one of your pieces of fabric has a little tear in the top of us. It's a kind of a cheat to help you guys a little bit. I just thought to just allow us to help enter into that experience. If you can find that tear at the top, uh, not the middle. Oh, some of you have already started. I thought that we would do this together. No, 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 stop it. I'm hearing people ripping. <laughs> you're, th you're throwing the whole thing off. Uh, on the count of three, just to get a little perspective of what it would have been like in that space, we'll rip this together. One, two, three. Can you imagine what that would have meant for a, a people group that have been trying to figure out Man, how do we get a better sacrifice? How do we have this desired relationship restored with our God? There's got to be something better than these goats. There's got to be, be something better than these sheep. There's got to be something better than these doves. And the amazing thing is, there was. And his name was Jesus. He provided the way for us to have a restored relationship with God. But it didn't come simply. It didn't, it didn't come lightly. It came with the most extreme sacrifice. God coming down in the form of a man and dying on that cruel cross. Let me pray as we consider this. Lord Jesus, we thank you. Tonight we gather as many are gathering in churches all over the world to remember the price that was paid so that the curtain could be torn and the relationship we were created for restored. God, we thank you for that. We're so grateful here on Good Friday for your choice, your choice to allow the soldiers, that you could have stopped at any instant to take you away. Your, your choice to sit back and allow this mock scene of a, of a trial to play out that you chose to allow them to deem you as guilty. What a joke. How amazing it is that you marched to that hill on that cross to pay the payments of my sin, to make the eternal payment that allows me to have connection with you forever and ever. God, we praise you for that tonight. We're so, so grateful. In Jesus' name, amen.
want to leave you guys with a passage. Hebrews 10, 19 says this. Therefore, you can stay standing just for a second. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. That's what we're remembering here tonight. This payment that was made that provided and granted us access. God bless you guys. Have a great good Friday. We'll see you Easter morning.